by traveling to places, I'm inspired to take images. And when I want to take images, it makes me want to go places. Um, and I, I think it's, it's all about the places you go to, the people you meet, and the camera is just the vehicle that took you there. Welcome to the Photo Mentors podcast. Each episode, we speak to a photographer or filmmaker and find out the experiences and advice that make them who they are today. We do this by asking 10 key questions, the same questions to each guest so that we can find the common themes and compare how different photographers and filmmakers go about their craft. That voice you just heard was Joe Allen. Joe is this week's guest and he's probably best described as a storyteller who shoots travel and street photographs that document his adventures and travels around the world. Of course, he's known for his self-titled YouTube channel where he documents those journeys and creates short films such as his recent Made in Japan film. Now, along with his partner Ellie, Joe also co-creates the Jelly Journeys YouTube channel. Joe has a background in graphic design, which comes across not only in his travel and street photographs, but also his clean titles and the visuals that he uses on his videos. Now, Joe is an avid lover of technology and cameras, and on his channel, he offers some insight into the camera kit he uses, as well as showing exactly how he creates some of his photos and videos, which makes it not only insightful, but also really entertaining. So it's great if you're into kind of travel and creativity. If you don't already subscribe to Joe's channel, obviously head straight over to YouTube and go and search for it. Joe's demeanor is a far cry from the usual kind of hyperactivity that you find with many YouTubers. And of course, I will add all of Joe's other social media links in the episode notes. Joe, first question then to get started. The easy ones, as you know, we asked five quick questions just to start off with to get things going, find out a little bit more about you, and then we go into the deep dive questions. So first up, what was your first camera? Uh, my first camera. So I'm going to answer this in two parts. Uh, so my my very, very first camera was a, a point-and-shoot 35mm Kodak something. I think it came from Boots. I've got no idea what model or anything. Uh, it was just like a Christmas present one year. But my first time taking photography seriously was the Canon EOS 350D. Good camera. I remember working in Jessup's, we sold absolutely loads of those. The 300 at the, and the 350. Yeah. Um, Nikon D70 all around that sort of time. But now, of course, things have moved on and you're shooting photos and you're also shooting video, you're vlogging, you're creating films. So I'm going to give you two cameras and two lenses for the next one. You're leaving okay. the house right now. Yep. What camera you're taking for stills? What camera you're taking for video? And what lens have you got on each of them? Well, now that you've given me the option for two, that's uh, <laughs> that's thrown a, a spanner in the works. Um, so, my main camera that I'd pick up right now would be the Canon R5, and I've got the the only RF lens I've got for that one is the twenty four to seventy two point eight, absolutely beautiful lens. Um, but of course, it is a big, heavy system. Uh, so my second camera that would be on my sort of like second option to go even lighter is going to be the Fuji X100F. Cool. That was what I had expected you to say. If you could only take yep. one out, what would you go for? Uh, I think it would be the R5 now. Um, if you'd have asked me that six months ago, it would have been the X100F. But the the R5 has really surprised me as being quite honestly one of the best hybrid cameras I could ever ask for. I'd previously 
gone away from the idea of searching for an, um, a hybrid camera. I just kind of came to accept the terms that there is no perfect camera for photo and video. And the R5 has, has performed. Um, I've had amazing use from it for both photography and video. And yeah, I think the fact that I wasn't looking for a hybrid, originally I bought it just for the video purposes. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a pleasant surprise and I'm very happy with it. You're quite agnostic when it comes to, to brands, aren't you? You'll use just, you know, I think what, having watched your channel for a few years now, I think you've used just about everything by every manufacturer at some point. <laughs> yeah, I've um, I've definitely gone through. Um, it's it's potentially a, a bit of a um, a pain to to work with from a from a marketing and business perspective because some brands maybe won't reach out because they're like, oh, we know that you shoot Fuji, or others will say, oh, we know that you shoot Lumix. And uh, the honest answer is, I I will just pick up a camera based purely on how I'm emotionally connected to it, and if it gets the job done if I have fun doing it. Um, some cameras that I've used have been far more capable than others, but if I don't enjoy the ergonomics and the usability of it, then I'm not going to use it. And in that sense, specs don't really matter. So um, yeah, I, I really I enjoy going around uh, choosing the different cameras. And it, it's also a drawback because it makes it very expensive. Um, you buy lenses and then a few years later, you get a little bit excited about a different camera and you'll buy that and keep hold of the lenses. I've still got all of my Canon lenses um, from years ago. And now that I'm back on Canon again, I'm able to use those lenses. Um, but it's a new mount and I'm excited by the RF mount because all the lenses are amazing on that. So you've got your bag, you've got your cameras in there, you've got your 2470 lens. What non-photographic items are we going to find in your camera bag? Uh, there's there's a, a few odd non-camera uh, related things. Um, probably the the first edition of the last year uh, is now having a disposable mask. I've got a couple in there. Um, just on the off chance you forget to carry a mask. You travel in. Um, you've been to Japan quite a bit. Did you ever carry those in Japan when you were out there as well? Never had them readily accessible in my bag, um, but I actually came across a photo uh, about taken about five years ago of wearing a mask in Japan because it was just one of those things of if ever you got a cold or if you were ill of some sort, um, you would just buy a mask and they were all convenience stores and uh, pretty easily accessible. And it's just the norm. It, it's just a, a normal thing there. So fully, fully on board with the idea of just having a mask if you're ill and it's just in the community that you do it to protect the community. Um, but now of course it's something that I've actively put into my camera bag because when we're around here, they're not always easy to come by. Um, but yeah, that, that's probably the first thing that being added to the bag that wouldn't normally be in there from a photography perspective. Um, I have a, a tote bag in my camera bag. So again, because we're quite often traveling and, um, we're out doing, you know, whatever on the day to day and, when it comes to the end of the day, you maybe get tired and you buy your shopping on the way home or whatever it is you're going to eat. Having a tote bag is just perfect to, to put things in. Um, and what else? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've actually got tampons in my bag, okay. um, which is just one of those things of uh, you never know who you're out shooting with. Get caught short. Um, it's just one of those things to be prepared. And um, What a gin. Yeah. <laughs> So what's your favourite place to take photos? 
let's go with type of place and also let's let's pick a place in the world let's put a pin in the map i like that you've um you're giving me options here it makes the <laughs> question so much easier when you when you've got variety and flexibility um so favorite place in terms of like a a type of place uh, I, I definitely love urban like mega metropolis um and i think that's why then if we go geographically it's tokyo just fallen in love with japan on on so many levels culturally um aesthetically and just so many aspects of japan itself is it fits into my personality and character of everything that i enjoy but also what i enjoy taking pictures of um but then on the complete flip side of that because obviously that's one of the most densely populated places in the world i absolutely adore the outdoors of somewhere like new zealand and just anywhere that you can go from say coastline to mountains in the space of an hour that you just really can't beat on a uh, sort of like personal escape i guess okay real real tough one um and i think i'm gonna i'm gonna start a, a league table with these i think kind of you know like top gear star where they do the the fastest laps and the, the worst and best mm-hmm. looking cars so obviously we had uh damien demolder was was the first guest on the the podcast and he set quite a high bar with this yeah um but how many camera bags do you own um i've i have lost count so i'm gonna i'm gonna have to quickly run through my head on that um the majority of them are low pro, so that's a, an interesting thing. So we've got, I'm going to call it low pro big, low pro small, low pro travel, low pro. I've gone through Manfrotto. Are we counting Pelican cases as well? I don't think we'll do Pellies, no. Okay. Oh, this is actually disgusting thinking about it now. I, I think I'm up to 12, maybe. 12. That's impressive. That's impressive. In about 16 years worth. So let's crack on with the deep dive, ultra serious uh, questions then. So let's start with what's the photo that you've taken that means the most to you? Uh, I'm, I'm going to interpret this slightly differently. So when when you sent it uh, the question over before, and I actually misread the question, I was, I was thinking a lot about it. But then in terms of how how I would interpret it means the most, I'm going to say it's a photo that was a real turning point for me. So in that sense, it means the most because it's possibly had one of the most significant impacts afterwards. Um, and I'm actually just going to send it to you now so I can I can talk to you uh, as I describe it. So this, uh, this was a photo I took in 2014 um, in Paris up the uh, Tour Montparnasse, which is one of the tallest buildings in Paris. And it's a culmination of a change in perspective in the way that I um, sort of planned travel. Uh, this is with Ellie. Both of us went there. And uh, it was one of the the first trips where we went with a fairly dedicated idea of going for photography. Um, so we were uh, going there as like a holiday, but there was we both carried cameras and we were going to capture things. And it was just after I'd bought the Canon 70D. And so this as an image... Um, first of all, the location, I wanted to go somewhere where I could see the Eiffel Tower from a viewpoint. And from then onwards, getting a successful image from a viewpoint of a landmark rather than going up the landmark, um, really changed the way that I would travel to other areas. So 
from this image alone, um, I just love the fact that you can see Paris and you can see the Eiffel Tower. Whereas when you go to Paris, if you go up the Eiffel Tower, what do you point your camera at? You can't see the Eiffel Tower. That's one of the main things that you're there to see. Um, and likewise, going up uh, other places or viewpoints, like for example, um, in Toronto, wanting to see the CN Tower, um, not necessarily going up the CN Tower and just all of these different things. So that in itself was, this was the first time I'd made a, a dedicated conscious effort of, I'm not going to go up the main thing. I'll take pictures of the main thing. Um, likewise, timing the um, the visit there so that we got there when it was daylight going through sunset into nighttime uh, rather than going out for dinner, which is what you would normally do if you're on a holiday. Uh, and this image is also a composite of two images uh, or two exposures rather. Um just one for the sky and one for the uh, foreground. And yeah, it's just, I guess it was like a, a culmination of putting a lot more thought and planning and the results paid off. And from then onwards, it's it's been a um, sort of mantra for travel. Um, yeah, good timing, good location, and to just try and visualize something before you go, especially if it's a viewpoint. So is that look at, you're now thinking, right, we're off to location xyz what is the the what's the iconic location in this place and then how are you how are you working out where you need to be to take that photograph you're looking for another is it another high vantage point or a low one or how are you going on to instagram to look see what other people have done or are you just literally just looking at looking at a map and seeing what area would have interesting kind of other buildings that, that may work or how does that work in terms of being able to plan that shot yeah, it's, it's definitely a lot of map mileage, um, going around uh, street view on places. And um, that's if it, you have the benefit of doing that if it's an urban environment. Um, or sometimes it's a case of using uh, maps that map the the sun. So you've got like the direction of the sun and, and you can sort of draw lines of, if I go to this point, am I potentially going to get a good view of that and trying to imagine what might be in the distance or that sort of angle? Um Instagram is a great place for just searching for an area and finding the you know the images that everyone's capturing and and the locations and then from there maybe dive a little bit further and go into the maps. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say probably maps and just like plotting line of sight into various things. There are a lot of times where that's gone completely wrong and you either can't get to the area that you want to be or you get there, take a load of images and then you come away and look at the map again. You think, oh, I wasn't actually where I was supposed to be. And then you you forever wonder, was the shot you got better than what you could have got if you went to the right spot? Um, or have you actually missed out on something? What has been your best photographic accessory purchase? Best photographic accessory is actually a set of gloves. Um, so I I struggle with very dry skin from about maybe September or October until April, I have to wear gloves. <laughs> it's just, my skin just flakes off and it, it's horrible. Um, and of course, those are sometimes some of the best times to be out taking images. Uh, so trying to find a set of gloves that work with all the small dials and as mirrorless cameras are getting smaller and smaller, it's just made it harder and harder. Um, but I came across these low pro set of gloves that are very slim, but very like tightly webbed they're almost like running gloves and um they've just got like flip out 
fingers and thumbs. And uh, yeah, those are definitely, definitely something I would rate highly in my camera back. Cool. That's a sensible one. What are you currently learning or what was the last thing that you've kind of learned? I, I've dedicated a lot. This is, this ties quite heavily in my filmmaking stuff, but it, there is photographic background to it as well. Um, I've dedicated a lot of my last two years or so just really trying to get involved with lighting. And um, I've, I've always been an advocate of enjoying natural light and trying to work with natural light as, as best I can in a scene. But I've just come to accept that there are times that even with natural light, you need to motivate it in some way and you need to to learn how to push it around and control it and elevate it into your imagery. And I think that's something that I've really focused probably more so on my video side of things um, because you have less editing control afterwards, but it does filter down through into my photography as well and just really focusing on the lighting. Um, hand in hand with that for the videos is definitely focusing on audio just so much more. I'm I'm just in a deep rabbit hole of audio equipment constantly, but I love it. <laughs> Who or what has been the biggest influence on your photography? Chase Jarvis. A really interesting one. Yeah. Um, I, I found his YouTube channel and I didn't realize that I was one of the first people to subscribe to his channel. Um, this was 11 or so years ago and it was about his studio set up no it wasn't even that it was a laptop bag he just made a video about his laptop bag and then did other videos about his studio setup um and he really paved the way of telling me or showing me what a, a, a commercial photographer can be like um and not only that but also how to promote yourself via a youtube channel and just outletting every bit of information that he had uh, on the internet for free and he's just been such a role model of putting information out and carrying yourself as a creative um without a doubt biggest influence for me do you um do you still subscribe to his podcast mm -hmm. yep i um i listen to it uh fairly regularly um going out for walks quite often put it on um i've never met chase but we do message um sometimes and yeah just kind of like chat stuff in fact, the the times when he's come to London have always been when I've been away. <laughs> like there was a time I was in Melbourne and I saw that he was going to London. And I was just like, oh man, he's going out for beers at a pub that I've gone to quite a few times in Covent Garden. And yeah, so one day I bump into him and actually meet him. But yeah. Okay, next question. What photographic technique do you wish that you learnt much earlier? There's... It, it goes hand in hand with the lighting uh, aspects. Um, so there's a, a bit of a mantra that I've been sort of replaying over my head for the last couple of years. And that is bright pixels are sharp pixels. And it's this idea that the the highest quality imagery you can get, no matter what camera you're using, even if it's just the built-in webcam on your computer, if you light the scene well, you can elevate that quality. It honestly doesn't matter what camera you're using. It's just all about shaping and controlling that light. And even very early on, the term photography is the study of light. Um, but I just, I, I wish I'd really grasped it uh, in the first couple of years or maybe first four or five years of, of shooting properly with a DSLR. Um, but of course, back then, there weren't really many people talking about it online and YouTube and it was only really through 
forums or photography clubs. Um, and I think I was just too young to really be paying attention to the right things. And it's only in retrospect um, that I've I've taken a more theoretical, um, yeah, that's, that's probably the wrong word for it, but I, I think more of a, um, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but I mean, focusing so much more on your environment to dictate the quality of the images rather than the equipment. I think that's probably a better way to, to think of it. So we've all made mistakes and we've all failed. Um, what has been your favorite failure? When did you mess up and you took something away from it? What did you learn from that mistake? Um, I mean, there's there are some things that, that happen consistently and they shouldn't happen consistently. Um, and I, I got out of the habit of this, but there was a, a long time where I just forgot to charge batteries a lot. Um, and you'd go out and either you remembered to charge the battery, but it's still at home charging or, um, yeah, just, just silly little mistakes like that. But I think probably the, the biggest mistake that I've never made again is, um, a file management error on my part. So in 2008, I think it was, I, I went to New York with, um, yeah, I went to New York with college and I got a, uh, what was it? I bought Mac OS Leopard 10.5. Um, it was cheaper in America. So I bought it there, came back home, uh, pretty jet lagged and installed it almost immediately and had an external hard drive. And it said, do you want to use this as time machine? I just said, yeah. And it said, this hard drive needs to be formatted um, to work as time machine. So I was like, okay, yep, cool. And as soon as I hit okay, I realized immediately what I'd done. And I just hadn't connected what the word format meant. Um, and then panicking within that second, I unplugged the cable, which just corrupted the hard drive. On that hard drive was almost exactly a whole year's worth of photography from 2007, January 1st, until December 31st. I had just images on that hard drive and they got completely wiped. Um, so that was the year that I turned 16. So I had my school prom photos, end of year photos, no. all sorts of things like that. Um, it was my second year of, of taking photography seriously. So it was kind of at the time, it felt like my best work. And um, yeah, all of all of those images were completely lost and I was devastated from it. But it taught me the, the benefits of having multiple backups very early on into my career, I guess. Um, it also taught me not to do things when you're jet lagged. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've, I've never made that mistake again since. And I'm incredibly thorough in my file management now, but yeah, that was that was a, a messy one for sure. So let's get geeky. Talk us through that. So what are you? How how are you backing up now? Um, so I've got a, f a few different automated systems. Um, so one of the luxuries of having a YouTube channel is that brands do reach out, and uh, one of the the biggest brands that has reached out in the recent past is Synology. So I've got a a home NAS system. Um, so that's just a, a server. And I actually recently bought. Um, how much did I buy? Another 28 terabytes for that. Um, so collectively, as a RAID 6, I've got about 60 terabytes worth of um, storage on that server. And 
that uh, automatically backs up my Lightroom libraries and any imports that I do, no matter where I am around the world, it will synchronize. And um, so if I'm abroad, it will slowly upload those images and, and back them up for me. But I also do a localized backup on just some standard external hard drives. I quite often go for the Western digital ones just because they've got um, just a, a nice small footprint. I know they're not necessarily the most reliable, but I'm not accessing them all the time. So it's, it is a, a second redundancy. And uh, I'm looking to set up a fully external online solution. But every one that I've gone through so far, it's just, it's never had a reliable like onboarding process. I feel like if you start from zero and just start importing, it will just upload fine. But when you're starting at a point of having 30 terabytes of images, it, it just doesn't seem to have a happy start so i'm I'm still looking into uh the best solutions for that yeah i'm kind of the same i'm looking for for something that you know i can i can do it but i know full well it's going to be a case of just leaving the computer on hoping that my internet provider doesn't mess up for any period of time and then most likely given you know the you've obviously got video to accommodate as well and many more photos probably than i have I think I'm, you know, I'm up to 41,000 or, or something at the moment in Lightroom. And that's not including like weddings I've shot and portraiture and work stuff mm. as well. And you just think that is a lot of time where my computer is just going to be uploading in the yeah. background. You know, you, it's, it's going to be a good few days and things. And like you say, it then becomes just like a this big daunting task. And then what happens if you want to stop? And then try again in a couple of days as it then go through the ones that you've already uploaded yeah. and work out whether you've got and it's just like you say there's there's anybody out there please leave a comment somewhere or get in touch with me or joe if you've got a decent online host for backing up all of your um, images what do you use and uh yeah that'd be really i think helpful. one of the one of the things as well is i'm really i'm really trying hard not to use amazon and I know that they are a, a big service for it, but it's just, it's one of those things where they, they have such a monopoly. They already have so much of my um, just shopping custom. <laughs> I, I just, I feel like that's one area that, um, you know, they, they operate about 60% of the internet. And yeah, it's ridiculous. On the other hand, I could argue and say, well, they have a solution for me. Why am I not just doing mm. it? Um, so yeah, I don't know about that, but if there is a, a non Amazon based one, brilliant. <laughs> what has been your favorite photography projects? I'll throw this out. Let's have photography and also let's have a video one as well. What's been your favorite photography project and what's been your favorite video project? Um, so I could actually, I could combine two together. So in early 2019, I had this idea that I wanted to make a, uh, a video series called the Japan Rail Series. And at the time, I didn't know how many episodes I was uh, going to produce, but as it turned out, it was four episodes. And I wanted them to be high quality visual documentation of a rail journey across um, some areas of Japan in the winter. And um, it turned out to be one of the most enjoyable trips. And the planning of it was a little bit chaotic because it was... Uh, very much in the headspace of I had this vision for things, but it was really hard to to pinpoint what it would be because I hadn't really made anything like it before. Um, and Ellie and myself spent near enough every day for three weeks just 
full day traveling, photographing, uh, capturing video. And it was just amazing. It was such a great trip, regardless of making the content. But the content that we made and the films and the images and um, everything all culminates together. And it's, it's like having a dream that I can just choose to play again. And I can just go and replay that memory. Um, and I think I'm, I look back so fondly on it because it's, it was all our work. Everything was all paid for by ourselves. There was no external, um, sort of connection on the, the travel side of things. It was all just a purely artistic project from our own thinking. And, uh, yeah, I, I love that. And it then led on to having other projects come about because it was a case of making the work you want to be hired for. And uh, I can't stress that enough in so much of my work that I do a lot of things for myself. And then in turn, a few months or a year later, someone reached out and like, oh, I'd love to hire you to do that, but for me. Um, and that is just the best feeling because you know that there was so much energy that went into making something for yourself. But likewise, it's come around, albeit a year later, with a financial reward from working for someone else on it. Cool. Something you mentioned there was um, quite interesting about watching it back, almost like you've got your you've got your own video diary. You know, we look for a photo, look back for a photo album. But do you ever sit back and look at your own YouTube videos from sort of travels five, six, seven years ago and have a laugh and be like, "Oh, I forgot." Do you, are there bits you forget about as well? Like, yeah, oh, I definitely. Remember doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I actually really enjoy watching back the videos and. Um, of all the videos that we put on the channel, it's it's always making them for ourselves first. That's always the the main goal. So I think that's what helps keep it enjoyable um, fully it, because I'll only ever make a video that if I'm the audience of one to start with, and then I know that other people are interested in it, but if I make it for myself first of all, first and foremost, then it it just flows so much more. There's so much more passion that goes into making it. Uh, there are times when I've made videos that have maybe balanced slightly the other way. So for example, doing camera reviews, it's, you know, there is a bit of strategical input there on um, building audience. But at the same time, I don't review every camera that I come into possession with. Like I've got my Canon R5, for example, I've, I've never made a review of it. I could do, there's plenty of traffic about it online, but um, I just don't feel like there's a lot that I can add to the conversation around it. And when I think of the videos that I want to look back on, I don't necessarily want to be watching old videos of just me telling the specs of a camera of that moment. It's the same way that I don't necessarily do uh, specific teaching in my videos. I'm not teaching people how to take photos because when I watch back, I, I don't want to tell myself how to take an image. I probably know better by the time that I'm watching it. Um, so yeah, I, I do always make them as a uh, make them for myself first and foremost. And then as as we go on uh, in the future and I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, those were great trips. There's definitely moments that you forget about. There's definitely um, things that at the time you watch back and you're like, oh, I remember the bits that we didn't film and uh, and the bits that, that went wrong on journeys. And, mm. and you remember that there are certain nods that you'll, you'll sort of like give yourself a, a little inside joke to your future self saying, remember remember when this happened, we didn't film that. The audience is none the wiser, but five years later, Joe, we'll watch it and uh, and we'll say, oh yeah, I remember that past Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so what have you stopped doing 
and why? Um, I could I could interpret this on a gear perspective. Um, I went through a heavy phase of really getting into um, off-camera flash and um, like strobist photography. I was I was uh, always looking into that, and I think it was around the era of um, oh, what are they called uh, pocket wizards. They became so much cheaper. Um, I, I can't remember what technology changed, but the, I just remember a distinct era when they became cheaper. And so many other photographers that I knew who were a few years older than me and were capturing um, band images and other things. And so many of them were doing strobist photography. And I really got into it as a style, but I never properly um, bought more than two flashes. And I used to use a flash all the time. And then I just stopped. I can't remember why, but I just stopped using an external flash. And I've never really gone back to using a flash in my images. Um, I, I can't really tell you why. It's just, it is one of those things. I feel I used to use it a lot. I was, you know, I did a lot of portraiture and, you know, shot the old, you know, I used to do gigs and bands and things like that and a few more event bits. And then what I found was uh, as I got older, I was doing more landscape and travel because the opportunities were there and you, you didn't, there was no real need for me to take a flash gun with me. But one thing as well was the fact that you could pull details out of shadows all of a sudden. Mm. I found the dynamic range on the cameras was getting so good that um, yeah, it's not a substitute for lighting. But you, I didn't have to use fill-in flash so much just to give some of those images a bit of pop. You could just lift the shadows of the raw images and... Um, it was quite interesting going back to some of the images that I shot on Nikon D70 years ago, quite recently. And I found because Lightroom has come on so much more and the algorithms have come on so much more, you can actually get stuff from the shadows that I kind of didn't even know was there. Or images where you sort of give them things up, you know, like the, the software can't deal with this, the image is no good. And then all of a sudden, years later, you go, oh, actually, I can just tweak that a touch and pull mm. something up. That For me, that was... It was around, you know, it was around that time where the sense of dynamic range really started to take off. I think that was when I probably stopped carrying a flash gun around with me quite so much. Now, last week, uh, Damien said that one thing he stopped doing was caring what other people thought of his images. Mm. Um, being on YouTube, that's probably one of the most vitriolic kind of social media platforms you can be on in terms of people just leaving faceless comments. So how, how do you deal with that? Um, I've been, I've been fairly fortunate in the sense that the audience that um, have chosen to follow my work are a very respectable audience. It's, it's a very, um, uh, a very respectful and intelligent community. I find um, there's, it's weird. There are, there are times when um, things can just be completely quiet. As I'd say, the last year or so, I've I've really not produced as many videos as I'd have liked, even in a year when things were quiet, um, because I, I haven't necessarily had anything to say or to add, and I'll only speak up on the channel if I've got something to say. Um, but at the same time, you don't always hear those comments of, you know, oh, where have you gone or whatever, because they know, they know that you take breaks and that it's fine. So in that respect, the audience is, they're only really there um, or they're only really making a significant impact when it is of a polite nature. 
Um, so I've never really had to deal with any sort of backlash or anything of, you know, you owe me this or <laughs> you need to, um, you need to do better at saying this or your images are crap or I've, I've never properly had that. But at the same time, I think that's just because it's a respectful audience that have come about from the videos. It's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate for that. And I know it's, it's not everyone's luck. Um, but I, I will absolutely take that as my own luck. What's the worst bit of photographic advice that you've ever heard? Don't necessarily have to be given this advice, but what's you may have overheard somebody or seen a video or read something somewhere and you thought, nah. Um, I read in a book, This was the book was published in 2006 and I was reading it in 2007. It said, don't shoot above ISO 640. And I just knew immediately. I looked at it and I thought, well, that's wrong. <laughs> why Why would you ever just so explicitly say, do not shoot above 640? I mean, I understood what they were saying um, on the quality of the image and it introduces so much noise, but I was also just looking at it thinking, well, that's not going to be the same next year. You've printed mm. that. Why have you printed that as a piece of information? Um, and I, I still think back to it now because... 10 years later, there are still people who tell me they're like, don't ever, don't ever go above ISO 800. And, um, it's just, it's so damaging, I think, as a piece of advice because it really holds people back. They, they think too technically on things and they'll quite often miss a shot because they'll say, oh, I couldn't get my, my ISO below 800 or maybe 800 is a bit low now for people to be saying it, but, um, 1200, for example. And, uh, I just think, take the shot. If it comes out bad afters, if it comes out noisy, grainy, whatever, um, then okay, it is what it is. But you at least took that shot. You didn't miss that moment. Chances are you can either get a great image from it, you can correct it, you can fix it digitally. Um, but just, I don't know, just that mentality of not clicking the shutter because of a certain arbitrary number is... Um, it, it baffles me. Yeah, it's amazing how just, you know, obviously that book may have been written a year before it was published, but let's say even in that time, within two years, just how how that advice very quickly became mm. redundant. My my bit of photographic advice, which hopefully no one would think it's the worst bit they've ever heard, is just ignore the top two ISO settings is always my... So that way it's kind of flexible into whatever yep. the maximum setting is. Just go back to, and then you're kind of in a, you're kind of in a safe zone there because you know the top two is just basically the manufacturers saying, look how high we can, we can push this. Um, yeah, no, I like that. That works. Look how nice it is. It's, I've written it in virtually every review I've written on a camera for about the last however many years. But... Um- that reminds me actually of uh, <laughs> talking with my dad about making Yorkshire puddings and he struggled for ages trying to make them because uh, my mum was always able to make them uh, super fluffy and, and he was jealous of that. And um, <laughs> he then discovered uh, that if you just add an extra egg, you get the fluffiness to them. And so he told me, he's like, whenever you, you look up um, Yorkshire pudding recipes, whatever it says, just add another egg. And I thought, well, is there going to come a time when someone's written the recipe right and I'm adding too many eggs? <laughs> and that has definitely happened. I've come out with the biggest, fluffiest 
most abhorrently, <laughs> yeah, wrong Yorkshire puddings. Um, but yeah, just one egg, whatever it says, an extra egg. <laughs> <laughs> and just like that, we've got our soundbite for the beginning of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so final question then, why do you keep taking photos? What's, the, what's your motivation? What's your drive? What makes you keep going? There's, um, I think there's a, a big factor to it. Uh, and that's travel. Um, I know that's, that's been difficult this last year. And I think that's why I've, I feel like I've been so recluse on a lot of things. It's a big part of my life has just been ripped out. Um, but the, the hand in hand nature of traveling and documenting it with a camera, um, they just go round in circles and it, it's two of my biggest passions just colliding and forming this mega mix of energy um by traveling to places i'm inspired to take images and when i want to take images it makes me want to go places um and i i think it's it's all about the places you go to the people you meet and the camera is just the vehicle that took you there joe i think that's a lovely way to end the episode i want to write that down that (laughs) (laughs) i'll transcribe all of this don't worry about that (laughs) i can send it to you joe thanks for coming on it's been great chatting to you thank you very much for having me um yeah this is a a a big exciting venture and i look forward to seeing how your podcast grows and develops it's a lot of fun cheers nice one buddy thank you that's it episode done many thanks again to joe for featuring on this week's episode and if you like this and you enjoyed it please it makes a great deal of difference if you subscribe to the podcast and if you leave a review or even just listen to a few more episodes. I'd really appreciate that. Thanks.